if nobody knows about you because you don't have the marketing dollars that your competitors do, mm -hmm. you're going to die. And that's, that's right. just the facts of life. And it, I will say it was hard being in Wyoming, especially four years ago um, mm -hmm. when you didn't get funding through virtual meetings, right? You mm -hmm. had to be in Silicon Valley or on the East Coast. You had to go meet these investors in person. It was a completely different environment and ecosystem. This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem and the Rocky Mountain region, the founders, funders, and contributors, and most importantly, the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital, and on today's show, we have a linguist. But she doesn't just speak multiple languages. She also speaks programming languages. As a matter of fact, she wrote the first version of her company's enterprise software. The epitome of a technical founder and CEO meet one of Wyoming's most accomplished startup founders, Heather Shoemaker, who is the CEO and co-founder of Language.io. Welcome to the show, Heather. To start off, why don't you tell me a little bit about you and, and your story and how you came to live and work and build your company in Wyoming? Thank you, Les. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I am excited to have you today. You know, I got to tell you, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but you are the first Wyoming founder oh. on Found in the Rockies that we're featuring. That is awesome. Yeah. I love being the first. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had some other really fun people from Wyoming, some other investors. We had Bailey Evans from uh, the sure. data, but yeah. you were the first founder. So, you know, big expectations here. We're excited. Oh, no. Now the pressure's on. <laughs> The pressure is on. So, well, I'll tell you what, why don't, uh, to start off, why don't you tell me just a little bit about your story, who you are, where you came from, and and how you ended up in uh, as a tech founder in Wyoming. Okay, Les, how far back should I go? As far as you want. You can go to the, the, the <laughs> let's start at the beginning. <laughs> okay, the beginning. I was born in the state of Alaska. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's it's no stretch that I'm here in Wyoming because Alaska and Wyoming are pretty similar. People who live in those states generally tend to gravitate to low population centers. So mm -hmm. anyway, I, I'm very happy to be in Wyoming now. And like as far as how I got started as a tech founder, um, I, I got my undergraduate degree in linguistics. I love languages. I kind of when I I didn't grow up in a bilingual household or anything, but mm. You know, in high school, I learned French and I, it was so much fun to speak another language. And then in college, I took Spanish and there was actually a population of Spanish speakers, you know, where I was going to school in Seattle. And um, it was so cool to be able to talk to these people in their language because, you yeah. know, a lot of them didn't speak English and it felt like a superpower. And I just got this rush every time I was able to effectively communicate with other people in their language. And I loved it. And so I, I decided, you know, when you're an undergraduate student, you don't necessarily make the best decisions from an economic perspective. So I'm like going into languages. So I got a degree in linguistics, came out of school speaking, um, you know, fluent Spanish, Portuguese, French, just to be very clear, I speak horrible Portuguese and French today. Um, <laughs> so don't ask me to. But anyway, after I got my undergraduate degree, I realized that there wasn't a lot I could do with a linguistics degree. I was um, 
a volunteer interpreter for the uh, Immigration and Naturalization Services Department for a while. That was fun because I got to talk to people seeking asylum from like Central America and I felt like I was doing a good thing, but I was never going to make any money at it. I tended bar. Um, I even dabbled in newspaper reporting for a while and then I decided I've always loved math and I remember hearing an NPR show at the time where they were like, Anybody who loves math should go into computer programming. That's the future. <laughs> and I know I'm dating what? myself when I say No, I was going to say, what era? <laughs> like, what NPR? What 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 decade was this NPR? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you the decade. That okay, that's all right. That's too all right. Much information. Too much. Too much. All right. <laughs> no, okay, I'll be honest. It was, I want to say, in the late, in the 90s, sometime okay. in the 90s. I was listening to NPR and considering going back to school or what I was going to do with my life, and it was... NPR and they were like Java programming. That's the future. And I was like, you know what? You're like going back to school. Java programming. You're like Java. You mean like coffee? Like <laughs> right? They yeah. well, no. NPR explains things. Oh, okay, so they, they explained explain. what it was. Okay. It was not coffee. It was a programming language. And so of course, um, of course. <laughs> I was like, this is the future for me. And so I actually went back. Um, my sister at the time was living in Boulder, Colorado. And I loved it. It reminded me of Alaska because of the mountains and such. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to apply to the University of Colorado, Boulder, see how that works out for me. So I got into the um, College of Engineering there, hmm. um, spent way too long getting my master's degree because I had to take all of the prerequisites for coding that I never got in linguistics, but I did it. And I was right out of school, really lucky because somebody that I'd gone to school with was working for a startup that was focused on software internationalization tools, basically tools that would refactor source code so that the code could support multiple languages. Ah, like, I see where this is so, going. Yeah. Yes, yes. I was able to combine linguistics and software development in the field of software globalization. And I spent maybe the first decade-ish of my postgraduate career as a globalization engineer. And I traveled all over the world. Um, for various companies that I worked for, rewriting, refactoring source code for big companies that were going global. Mm -hmm. And as a globalization engineer, what I discovered is that the biggest challenge that companies faced when they were going global wasn't refactoring source code. I mean, that was a pain in the butt, but it was doable. It's not rocket science. Mm -hmm. The biggest challenge they faced was multilingual customer support. It was this messy operational challenge because they were, once they, they got their application, their software, um, able to support multiple languages. Suddenly they were like, oh shoot, I now have to support my customers in all of these languages, right? Yeah, and now so, I gotta, I gotta I need regional offices now. Or, yes, right? yeah. yeah, they're like, okay, now I have to staff up in Russia, in China, in Europe, uh, and it's just not scalable. And sure. so that's when I started thinking about the problem and just kind of brainstorming, what would I do if I were them? What what technology could be written, um, coded to solve this problem? And so eventually I wound up um, working for a company in the Denver Tech Center called eCollege that was a learning management platform. And we were, you know, I had shares there. We were acquired by Pearson for about half a billion dollars. That was, wow. you know, a lucrative exit for us. And yeah. that freed me up and gave me some, um, flexibility to go out and do something on my own and started coding a solution to this problem. And yeah, that's, that's how it all began. So fun. And I, I would imagine too, when, when you were at eCollege, you probably also had really built up a great network and also had some really good experience 
you know, on that journey, right? Like, like yeah. taking a company, working with a company that was on a path to a half a billion dollar exit. Yeah, um, absolutely. Cool. You got to like when you're going to start your own company and sell into Fortune 500s, you have to have some experience in a big corporation, right? Mm -hmm. So I even stayed on Eddie College for a while after the acquisition It was acquired by Pearson. And that gave me a lot of good corporate experience. And while I'm not personally cut out for the corporate world, you have to be able to swim in those waters. I'm, I'm glad you said that because that's I think that's quite often uh, underestimated by founders uh, yeah. in our region, like when they're starting these enterprise B2B SaaS companies and it's it's could be daunting without that experience. And, and you know, trying to hire into that experience is, is like really the only path if you don't have it. But that's sometimes a, a real challenge. Totally. And especially when you're trying to sell into Fortune 500s, you have to navigate that hierarchy and know corporate cultures and the different types that exist and who to talk to and such so for sure uh i want to go back to the boulder because okay. um i gotta tell you it's fascinating how many guests we have on the show that end up in other places in the rockies but it seems like all like at some point roads lead through boulder and then i did not huh. know that your story was there as well but can you tell us a little bit about that experience was that your first taste of the the, the lower rockies so to speak after you you moved you you came from alaska or yeah you... absolutely um, I've lived in other parts of the U.S., but that was my first foray into the Rockies. I thought it was beautiful because growing up in the mountains in Alaska, you know, I lived in Washington State in the Midwest for a little while. I even, even lived in Mexico for a while. Mm -hmm. And um, then when my sister moved to Boulder and I went to visit her there, it was like seeing the Rockies was this breath of fresh air. Is like, this is where I belong. Yeah. These, this, these are my people. This is my country, you know. Yeah. And then and then and then choosing, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, choosing to go into programming like is never, uh, never an easy, uh, an easy path uh, when, when you, you know, if, if, unless you were uh, like my my nephew who like grew up in his, you know, coding in his parents basement. It was an sure. easy path for him to choose. But I mean, what what was that experience like jumping from uh, a language background into a very technical field where. You know, you're probably surrounded by the norms, right? Yeah. Well, I get where it would be weird for a lot of people, but I've always been kind of a weirdo. And I <laughs> have always loved science fiction. And about that time when I heard the NPR broadcast, um, I was super into, and again, this is going to date me, cyber science fiction. Like uh, um, Neil Stevenson, William Gibson, and even hard sci-fi like Ursula Le Guin. Um, and so I just knew that, you know, the metaverse was the future. And sure. so you fit right in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, of course, of course I need to be a coder. This is, this is a natural progression. Very cool. What about, uh, you know, so I, I grew up, uh, in high school, I, I, I took, uh, four years of Latin uh -huh. and, uh, so I never really spoke a uh, language until, um, I lived in Italy for a year and I learned, I mean, I took French in college, didn't learn it. Um, spoke, learned it, Italian, speaking Italian uh, in when nice. I lived in Italy. Do you but, need a job? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you might, you might want to test me uh, <laughs> before you, you, yeah, before you make an offer. But uh, it's a little rusty. But um, I'm curious your your experience because for me, I was I was always kind of a coder before I I, I really spoke and learned a language, a real language. Um, 
and I, I, I found some really unique similarities. What, what, what's, what was your journey kind of doing it the other way around from linguist to, you know, I mean, there's a reason we call them programming languages. They're languages. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, you're right. And not a lot of people make that connection, but I absolutely was thinking along those same lines. So I just felt like coding was a super powerful language because uh, you could write words and execute and they would do anything like whereas <laughs> spoken language was absolutely a superpower when it came to be able to communicate with people coding was just another level it was so exciting a language that obeys you like yeah well, <laughs> right. well it's like talking to a toddler one of yeah. my first instructors was like yeah it's like talking to a toddler it does exactly what exactly what you tell it to do and what you think you're telling it to do may not be what you're actually telling it to do. So I don't know if that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah, no, definitely. That's fun. Um, so tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about sort of the beginnings. I mean, it's, it's very clear where your inspiration for language IO came from. Mm -hmm. Tell us about kind of the origins of, of deciding to like really, really go after this problem. Like when, when was it, how did you go about it? How did, uh, what was the, what was the kind of, you know, the moment you jumped off the cliff and said, I'm doing this, that kind of, that kind of stuff. The moment I jumped off the cliff is very clear because I was um, <laughs> literally, it felt like jumping off a cliff. I was at Pearson and after e-college got acquired by Pearson, I knew things were going to change that, sure. you know, moving from this company of 350 odd employees to 30,000 would be a big cultural shift. I just had no idea what I was in for. And the environment just, it was not what I signed up for. Like mm. it felt not to throw any company under the bus, but large corporations are so competitive. And it, I guess it depends on the culture, of course, but it, it just didn't feel like I was part of a team that was all rowing in the same direction anymore. It felt more like we were competing with each other and there was, mm. you know, just corporate toxicity. And I just knew that I wasn't going to last very long there, that I just was not cut out for this life. Like I'm not a, I know this sounds weird to say because I'm the CEO of a scaling company, but I'm not really naturally a climber, right? Like climbing the corporate ladder was yeah. never a big aspiration of mine. And that's kind of what was required of me if I wanted to stay successfully in that environment. I'm sure, have you been in similar situations yourself? Yeah, you know, it's, I've never heard it described that way, but that, that is, I mean, I even think back to when I was in the military, uh, it was, there was always so much an aspect of teamwork at the lowest levels, but there was such an aspect of climbing and competing against others' peers to get, mm -hmm. To, to basically in order to have a career like that's exactly. what you had to do that's what you had to do i never heard of it heard of it described that way but that's that's so spot on yeah. and i'm not trying to say that what i'm doing now isn't competitive we are absolutely competing against other companies who are vying for market share in the same space that's fine what's hard is when within your own organization or your own department where you feel like you're not on the same team where you're mm -hmm where people are ready to just stab you in the back if it's in their interest. That's not a good feeling. I no. like, like co corporate culture at language. I was so important to me. I really, really try to uh, maintain a team that works well together where mm -hmm. we're all headed in the same direction. 
for sure. So you had this feeling of, of, you know, wanting to, wanting to step out and, and yeah. build your own and, culture, build your own team. And then how did it, how did it come about? Yeah. So, um, I decided I was going to do my own thing. I knew I was living in Cheyenne, Wyoming at the time. I knew there wasn't yeah. a lot of software development services available. So I thought I'm just going to start my own company. And initially what happened is I started a company called Cheyenne technology, just services, software development was pretty easily able to, um, get a lot of customers because, uh, folks who wanted web development done or whatever it happened yep. to be, would have to go outside of town to find, uh, resources. And so when I was available, you know, hung up my shingle in Cheyenne, I was able to get business pretty quickly, but I knew that services wasn't my long-term goal. That's not, you know, a hugely sure. lucrative thing. You get paid project by project and that's, yeah, I wanted to do a product. Yep. And, um, at the time, uh, a colleague that I'd worked with historically was at another company and she had an opportunity for somebody to code a solution for a major surveys company. I won't say any company names because I'm not, not sure what we are and aren't supposed to say. Of course. And, um, and she was like, Hey, can you just code this integration into a client relationship management platform for this, this large company, because they have all of this customer support content that they need to get translated. And there's no way for them to get it out and translate it back in. And I was like, you know, as a globalization engineer for a decade, I ran into this problem over and over again. And yeah, I could do it as a one-off, just a, as a contractor for this company, but I think there's a productizable opportunity here. Mm -hmm. I know that lots of corporations are trying to solve this same problem. So uh, we got this company to agree to license the solution after mm -hmm. it was ready for them. And it, initially it was something very simple. It was just um, an integration that allowed them to automate the human translation of knowledge base articles, FAQs. Mm -hmm. but as soon as we released that into the marketplace at the time, it was for right now technologies in Montana. In Bozeman. Yeah. In Bozeman, sure. Yes. All right. So as I understand it, so you got, you got this, you had this opportunity with a customer to translate FAQ content. And yep. that's, that's kind of what, what led to some, you know, more, more, more progress on kind of the underlying idea or the business model here. Yeah. So, you know, translating FAQ content, again, is not rocket science, but it is important because at the time, self, well, even today, self-help is super important, a super important part of your customer support strategy, because if, if your customers can find answers to their own questions, mm -hmm. it saves you lots of money. And what was going on at the time is most companies, as today, used a client relationship management platform like Right Now Technologies. Um, to author and publish those FAQs, but it was really hard to get them out and translated and back in. They were kind of held hostage by the CRM. So at the time, oh, so it was just me. So essentially, if somebody in one question asked a or one language asked a question, unless it was asked in the other language, it would be lost to the world, basically. Yeah, it was. And you, what they needed to do was translate all those FAQs into all of the yeah. languages that they needed to support. So the first thing that I did was to code that integration. Pretty straightforward. It mm -hmm. just, you know, pulled the articles out of right now, pushed them into the translation platform. We had linguists translate the articles, and then we pushed the articles back into right now, all in this automated, seamless process. And the first customer was thrilled. Um, they licensed it. And we were actually at a Right Now Technologies conference. And we pulled in a few additional customers at that point. And we were looking to sell our solution to anybody else who needed it. 
and one of the world's largest social media platforms, a group from this social media platform approached our booth and they, they said, Hey, I heard what you did for translation of FAQ content for this other company. We'd like you to do the same thing, but real time for email and chat content. Is that something uh -huh. that you could do? And I mean, they're one of the world's largest social media companies. Of course we could do it. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um, on the roadmap. It's in the next yeah, sprint. Right? I was like, yeah, no, no problem. Two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. really. But um, I was the only coder at the time. So I went back and coded a more robust solution that would use mach real-time machine translation and some rapid turnaround human translation services to allow the social media company who had all of their support agents in Omaha, Nebraska, speaking only English. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to field these support sessions, um, you know, in Chinese and Russian, they were cutting and pasting in and out of Google Translate. It was no good. <laughs> and so we just automated the whole process for them. And they're still a customer today. Amazing. And, yeah. So I got, I got to ask, I, you know, I think probably the elephant in the room is like, so why wouldn't somebody like Google do that? On, like, why would Google make... That make a customer copy and paste into you know Google Translate. Like, why don't they have a business API that just does this? Well, Google does have APIs. Okay. The issue isn't that. that there are many issues associated with mm -hmm. that. So Google's a great translation engine. It's one. Mm -hmm. It's one that we integrate with today. So is Microsoft. So is DeepL. So is Sistran. There are lots of really amazing neural machine translation platforms out there that anybody can hit on mm -hmm. you know by API. The problem is generating translations specific, specifically accurate for a company, one company. So to give you an example, we have companies in both the online video streaming vertical, as well as the online gambling market. Now, both of those markets, customers in both of those markets, video streaming and online gambling, very frequently use the word player because when you're placing a bet as a gambler, you're going to place a bet on a player, you know, whether we're talking basketball or tennis or whatever it is. Sure. Um, but when you're in the video streaming industry, you're using player in a completely different way. Now in English, it's the same word, but if you're translating the word player into Spanish, it's a completely different word. If you're talking about a video streaming player versus a basketball player, basketball oh, player in see. Spanish is jugador video streaming player is tocador. And if you get it wrong, the customer has no idea what you're talking about. Of course, I'm not play, placing a bet on a video streaming player. You know? this, is, this is like a classic language. I mean, we all have had situations like this when we're learning languages, right? Where you, totally. you use the wrong word, like at the dinner table table of the girl you're dating in Italy's house. That may oh, or may not have happened. And her, and, her, and her parents dropped, yeah, <laughs> their mouths dropped to the floor. And it's like, I didn't realize that... <sighs> that the word to sweep meant something else. But anyway, oh, yeah. so I anyway, uh, story. it's a yeah. good story, but not fit for the, uh, okay. it's not for the podcast, maybe. Yeah, uh, but I get it. I, yeah, yeah, for sure. I, uh, but I get it. I mean, this is a common, common language mm -hmm. translation problem that you're solving. Now, now, the way Google is going to translate player from English into Spanish is the way the most generalized way possible, the way most people want it to be translated. I'm going to go with basketball player. You know, Google mm -hmm. Translate doesn't know the context. It just has this one little sentence and it's going to translate player the most popular way to translate player. 
When we're talking B2B content, where mistranslation of that word means a lost customer, the stakes mm. are much higher and companies are willing to pay somebody to help them solve that problem. Google is not going to solve that problem for every last company. You know what I'm saying? Neither exactly. is Microsoft. Exactly. They're interested in solving, you know, unique people problems. They're not interested mm -hmm. in these B2B specific problems for mm -hmm. at least not where AI is concerned. So there's a huge market opportunity for companies like Language.io who are like, you know what, we can make sure that this machine translation that we're providing you is accurate for your business. And mm -hmm. we've developed really unique core technology to get it right. And it actually sits on top of the world's best neural machine translation platforms like Google, Microsoft, yep. DeepL, I could go on and on, Amazon. Um, we use all of them. Our intelligence comes in our ability, A, to pick the best neural machine translation from a fluency perspective for that language. So when we're first going to translate a chat related to player, we're just going to know which engine is going to translate from English to Spanish the best. That's our first decision that we make mm -hmm. um, based on lots of learning. We have all sorts of machine learning models, et cetera, that we spun up to make those decisions. But that's still just a general translation. It's not going to know that Vimeo needs player translated as tocador or mm -hmm. Betson needs it translated as jugador. Um, on top of that call to the NMT engine, we have a means of pre-processing the chat so we can tell the engine that we select how we want these problematic terms translated. But furthermore, we're adaptively and dynamically learning so our customers don't have to call out every last term that requires a special translation. So mm -hmm. asynchronously, we're sending each chat an email that we're asked to translate to NLP processes that run in the background and are scanning each customer's content for new problematic terms and phrases that we start tracking. And once they hit a certain threshold of usage, mm. we add them to the glossary for that company with the preferred translation. That's, that's brilliant. So it's almost like it's sort of a supervised, uh, well, it's, it's kind of a supervised learning approach in terms of how you're building kind of these, these lexicons or these indices. Yeah, we have both supervised and unsupervised um, feedback into our models. Very cool. I mean, really, really unique approach. Very cool. Well, thank um, you, Les. So what, so oh, from, this is like from Omaha, Nebraska to, you just described like the big vision and what you're doing now, but like, what about, what was the next step after that was a success? Uh, like, when did it become, you know, language IO? When did it yeah. become? <laughs> That's a great question because, you know, we, at first we were thinking we can just grow organically. There's so much demand. We're the only company in this space um, that's really laser focused on multilingual customer support. This is going to be awesome. We're just going to gobble up the market. And I, I wasn't really, you know, no entrepreneur knows what they're doing unless at least not your first time, right? You go into this thinking, this is a great opportunity. Um, let's see where it goes. And I knew that a lot of other startups went out for VC funding or angel funding, but I was thinking at the time, let's just grow organically because nobody else is doing this. We're mm -hmm. the only ones in the space. Well, we knew it was a massive market opportunity. We did the research and it wasn't long until other companies realized the massive market opportunity. Mm -hmm. And we started to see new entrants into this multilingual customer support space. Mm -hmm. And at that point we decided 
we're going to have, if we're going to compete, we're going to have to get funding or we're going to die this slow death because one of the competitors, competitors in our space um, made the announcement that they just received like 25 million in funding. And, wow. you know, it's, it's hard to compete just growing organically sure. with another competitor that's rocket fueled. Right. Exactly. So at that even, point, even if you're better, even if you're, exactly, your approach, it doesn't even matter. If, that's right. That's right. If nobody knows about you because you don't have the marketing dollars that your competitors do, mm -hmm. you're going to die. And that's, that's right. just the facts of life. And it, I will say it was hard being in Wyoming, especially four years ago, um, mm -hmm. when you didn't get funding through virtual meetings, right? You mm -hmm. had to be in Silicon Valley or on the East Coast. You had to go meet these investors in person. It was a completely different environment and ecosystem. And so at the time, I would get meetings with investors who were interested in what we were doing. Mm -hmm. But out of the gate, they would find out we were in Wyoming. They'd just be like, how do you run a SaaS company in Wyoming. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that, Heather, because I think if you, I was just about to remind our, our listeners that you are in Cheyenne, Wyoming, because you, yeah. you tell the story and it's like, this could be a, 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 any other company in any other Bay Area, you know, you name it, uh, location. Right. And, and nobody would blink an eye. They'd be like, oh yeah, sure. This is, uh, you know, this reminds me of, of like, a a company that that is that is venture backed by a tier one VC in the Bay. Um, but you're in Cheyenne. <laughs> not in the uh, Bay. Very different. Not in the Bay. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, I remember I did a pitch. No, it was a presentation at a language industry conference. And there were VCs attending, listening to our presentations. And um, after my presentation, one of the VCs came up to me and said, listen, you've got a great opportunity here, a great solution, but you've got to move to San Jose. You're not going to uh, get anywhere until you move to San Jose. And I heard that over and over again. And I just didn't want to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I was just like, you know what? This is my life. I, I like where I live. Mm -hmm. um, I've lived in large cities. I don't want that for myself. Not going to do it. And so mm -hmm. I had just kind of resigned myself to doing it the old fashioned way. Um, wasn't sure really where to go. And I was at a tech event in Cheyenne. And let me just caveat that by saying there aren't very many tech events in Cheyenne. But there was, um, there was uh, this little technical school called Array School that had started up in Cheyenne. And yep. I was on the advisory board because I thought it was great. And um, we were there after hours celebrating the graduating class. And this guy that I didn't know came up to me and said, hey, Heather, um, I'm Jared Stack. You probably know who he is. And he's like, I hear that you have a SaaS company. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's called Language.io. And he's like, well, we're looking for SaaS companies to invest in. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, is it, what, like, what, am I getting punked right now? Like, what, totally. what is going on? I was like, where are the cameras? This, I'm like, okay, whatever, Jared. And he's like, no, really. <laughs> and so he invited me to come pitch to his angel group, Breakthrough 307 in Casper, Wyoming. Now you probably know this, Wyoming is a huge oil and gas economy and yep. oil and gas is tough, um, you know, with environmental concerns, et cetera. And so the state is really looking to diversify the economy here in Wyoming. 
And mm-hmm. so groups like Breakthrough 307 are looking to do the same thing and get companies to stay in Wyoming and provide tech jobs here for obvious yeah. reasons. And so the, they're an amazing group and it was we, the best thing that could have happened. Sorry, go ahead. So, so good to hear. I was going to say we, we we actually had Jared on the podcast last week. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, he's, nice. Been, he's phenomenal. I, I, I just have really grown to respect and admire everything he's done for, for that whole state and that ecosystem. So oh, me that's too. very cool. So 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 now you're like, OK, it's real. There's VC money. I'm going to I'm going to raise. And was it what time for, was this in 2019 or what? Yeah, what? it was 2019. Okay. And um you know, we pitched to Breakthrough 307. They were interested. Jared helped me pull in additional investors. It was a small round. It was just half a million dollars. But at the time, half a million dollars was a lot of money for Language.io. Mm-hmm. Um, for a Wyoming company, it's massive. And right. we got uh, participation from other Wyoming companies like Jonah, Jonah Inc. It's it's a large um, company here, Jonah Bank, et cetera, um, associated with the McMurray Foundation, if you're familiar with those folks. Okay. We got Alex Amramsev yep. from Silicon Couloir and some of his folks to invest, and we completed the round. And you know how it works, Les. Once you have some investment, the rest of it's a little bit easier to get. FOMO. Yeah, the FOMO exactly. begins. <laughs> so we did that. Um, we called it a seed round, but it was small. And then sure. we did an equity-based seed round. So the first round we did with mm-hmm. 307 was a convertible note. Uh, then I had to go back to the fundraising process. And VCs are a completely different animal than angel investors like 307. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the angel investors like 307 are just so much easier to interact with than VCs who are so much more jaded. Especially, <laughs> especially yeah. In the valley and on the east coast and that was hard it wasn't i'm not going to say it was easy especially again because it was still Mm pre-covid um but then covid hit Mm. i had just started the series seed the equity-based seed round raise Mm -hmm. covid hit and suddenly i didn't have to fly anywhere like all the (laughs) VCs wanted to meet virtually and so suddenly the VCs are like, oh, you're in Wyoming. Is is that where you have like your COVID getaway house? Is that- exactly. They thought it was normal. <laughs> yeah. They're like, like, oh, this is awesome. We want to move to Jackson. You know? Yeah. Jackson. Like, oh, of course. Shana's like, not very far away. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. We're in the same state. It's just down the road. Uh, that's so funny. So I wonder, so it's, it's almost like giving folks an excuse to come to a board meeting in, in Wyoming. Right? Totally. Like, renewed no, interest. Little did they know that Jackson and um, Cheyenne are like night and day, yeah. but um, it, it doesn't matter, right? Suddenly it was relatively normal to be fundraising from Wyoming. Of course, you don't want to be in a major population center during mm-hmm. COVID. So it did, uh, to some extent, simplif- simplify the fundraising process. But I won't lie, um, being a woman and not just a woman raising VC capital, but raising it in technology was mm-hmm. weird for VCs. Mm-hmm. They're totally familiar with a woman raising VC funds for the fashion industry or anything related to kids and babies mm. or you know, but as soon as you say, yeah, I'm a woman, I wrote version one of our solution. I'm a coder and this is solid technology. I won't lie. I got a lot more negative pushback from VCs. Mm. That's than, disappointing. It is disappointing. Um, 
uh, they were, there would be so many more questions about the legitimacy of the the technology or the moat. The underlying premise was if you can write that, how hard is it? You know, how hard is it to duplicate what you've done? And that's so really, that's really disappointing to hear. I mean, I, I I just I can't imagine being being in a situation where there was like a discredit, you know, to to a, a, an entrepreneur just purely purely on those that sort of a basis. And I and I, I understand I totally understand that it happens. But what how did you pull through that, Heather? Like, how did you because that's 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 tough. That's really hard. It was. And it it really made me, I don't know, reassess what I was doing and take a long, hard look. Is this really the path that I want to go down? But um, I even was talking to some colleagues, maybe, and I was serious about this. I was like, if I were male, this would be so much easier. I'm going to change my name to Heath. I'm going to do <laughs> voice modulation because, you know, these meetings are all virtual. Yeah, um, yeah. I can wear a beard and mustache. In fact, one, <laughs> one person said, if you had a long white beard, it would be so much easier. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm like, I know, I know. But I persisted. I sure maintained, maintained my female facade, yep. did not modulate my voice. And eventually I just got lucky. Um, Alex actually connected me with a group in the Boston area that focused on um, women founded tech. Mm. They in turn connected me with a major VC uh, for well, major investor in the Boston area. Um, Robert Davoli, he used to be with Sigma Ventures, then he started his own VC firm called Gutbrain. He's really well known on the East Coast and the investment sure, community. Sure. Very progressive. Didn't, he knew the language services industry really well, which helped massively. Wow. Because I wasn't having to to explain to him why what we were doing was A, hard to do, and B, super necessary in the SaaS B2B world. And so, that's probably almost what it what it truly took for yeah. somebody to get it. Yeah. Exactly. Amazing. So I wasn't having to start from scratch with him and explain why Google wasn't a competitor, you know? Right. So right. he was like, oh, I totally get it. The market's huge. Let me, let me see your technology. And so it, it moved really quickly. Once Bob yes. got involved, he pulled in some of his, you know, folks who invest with him regularly. We were able to raise the $5 million um, seed equity round. We moved very quickly into it's a great uh, size, by the way. I mean, for yeah. a regional seed round, that's that's got to be near the top quartile in terms of size. So that's good work. That's awesome. Thank you. And yeah, um, yeah once you've got a VC in your court, especially <laughs> a well-known guy like Bob, um, yeah. it, it does pave the way. And we were then able to subsequently pull in other investors. We pulled in Omega Venture Partners in Silicon Valley, who've been amazing. Um, and then nice. we recently started to work with Caruso Ventures in Boulder. We wrapped yep. up a Series A. And to date, we've raised about $15 million. We'll be going out for a Series B um, in early next year. Super exciting, Heather. Congratulations. Oh, I mean, it's amazing. It's such a such a journey. And I'm I'm so thankful, you know, that you that you stuck with it because uh, you know, somebody that is just obviously super talented as a as a as an engineer, as a leader, as a CEO, as a founder, like your journey's just beginning, right? I mean, oh, you've I got know. a lot you got a <laughs> lot of gas in the tank and a lot left to prove, which is really, really exciting. 
Um, you know, and I, and I would say you said you got lucky. I, I actually, I, you know, I, I tell this to some of the founders in our portfolio because that word gets used too often. And it's, it's actually, I feel like it's more about being, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's more about the intersection of persistence and opportunity. You know, people yeah. that are persistent enough, like the opportunity eventually finds you. And then it's like, oh, I, I got lucky. And it's like, it had nothing to do with luck. You did it. You did it. Uh, well, thanks. And you know, I, I'm a big hockey fan, so I like to make hockey analogies. Yep. And you're right. Persistence is key. And in the world of hockey, if you watch hockey, you know, you have oh, to yeah. keep shooting at the net to make a goal, right? Yep. Um, and you're not going to get every puck in. In fact, you're, most of your pucks are not going to get in. That's but right. if you keep bringing it to the net, eventually you're going to score. And we just kept bringing it to the net. You sure did. You sure did. You know, that, 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 that analogy rings home, especially for me, because I watched my son play his first season of travel hockey this year. Uh -huh. he, he didn't score a goal all year until the state semifinals. He scored the goal that, sent, that tied the game in the third with like three minutes left. Oh, and my goodness. Going on to win. You so, must have been so proud. Were you I was like, so, oh my gosh, I was so proud. That's why. Throwing your into the air and like, yeah. I, yeah. Well, well, yeah, maybe the water, water, the water. I had. water. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, I, you know, yeah, I'm so proud. I'm so proud. I'm, I tell it to everybody, but it's like, though, it, that's, that's why you take all those shots. It's like yeah. that one that you make is yep. what you do it for, right? That's why, yep. it's why you do it. It's why you get out on the ice every day. It's awesome. Awesome, Heather. Well, what what's in what else is in store for you for for Language IO? What's what's next? You mentioned the Series B potentially mm -hmm. going out to raise that. Um, yeah. How are you thinking about the future of the company and, and the future of of um, uh, of the region? In fact, like just what you're doing in Cheyenne. Oh yeah, those are so many good questions. There, um, it's a whole new world now at Language IO, right? Because at the beginning of 2021, we were a 12 person company. We're now like a 65 person company. So the problems that I was facing at the beginning of 2021 are completely different than, than scaling a company like we are today. Financially at Language.io, you know, it's what every SaaS company wants to do to get their valuation up, which is to triple, triple, double, double, double. Yep. And we're on track for that, um, knock on wood. Uh, so we've amazing. been making our numbers. We've been, it's, it's an amazing market and we've got a great market fit. Now, as far as the region is concerned, I was just talking to the Wyoming Business Council last week about this exact thing. They asked the same question. Mm -hmm. My thought is, is if we could replicate what you guys did in Montana where, with Right Now Technologies, that was Bozeman, right? Yep, that's right. It was so Bozeman. Yep. Little, little tech company that got big, Right Now Technologies, got acquired by Oracle, um, mm -hmm. maintained a presence in Bozeman, and all of these other tech companies spun off That's right. from that success. And I want the same thing to happen in Wyoming. And for that to happen, you have to see growth. Like it's absolutely crucial that you support entrepreneurs and the little startups, but it's equally important that you get those companies that are successfully uh, raising series B, series C, growing to a size that's large enough that's to right. become this kind of vortex of technology and attract other companies into its orbit. Mm -hmm. And that's what needs to happen in Wyoming, like you've seen happen in Bozeman. I love it. I, I think it's such a uh, it's such a big, hairy, audacious goal and, and such a good one, uh, I think, for 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 Cheyenne or for, for Wyoming. And, and really that 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 whole 
kind of southern corridor that that frankly is just like an extension of some of the goodness that's already happened in Colorado, right? Yeah, I mean, you guys absolutely. aren't that far from DIA. Um, so, uh, you know, I, 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 I look at our ecosystem now, and if you look at our NFC portfolio across the, the companies that we've backed, you know, the, um, I think we've backed 20, 21, somewhere around there, Montana companies to date out of our 43 portfolio companies. But if you look across the portfolio, you will find sprinklings of right now technology in, I, I would beg to say, every single one of them, whether it's senior sales professionals, right. CEOs, product people. Yeah. So you are absolutely right. Like that is a way to build an ecosystem. And what what better company uh, to be, you know, the one that they all come from than Language.io. I agree. I think it would be amazing. Well, super fun heather uh to have you on the show today i i love the vision i love what you have 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 in store um is there anything you'd like to kind of leave just uh our audience with other founders out there that are trying to kind of do similar to what you you're you're doing uh yeah i mean there's so many things to say but i think it all goes back to what you and i were just talking about earlier don't give up keep bringing the puck to the net you're gonna get lots of rejections you're going to question your self-worth question whether what you're doing is viable, but if you persist, keep bringing that puck to the net, you're going to, you're going to score eventually. Awesome. Heather, thanks so much for being on the show. Could you uh, just tell our audience where they can find a little bit more about you and language IO online? Absolutely. So thank you Les, for having me and to find out more about language IO, just go to language.io. Um, or languageio.com, either of those work. You can read all about what we do, who we are, our growing company, and uh, Heather Morgan Shoemaker. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. Terrific. Thanks, Heather. Thanks, Les. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to our podcast page at nextfrontiercapital.com to get links and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop. We'll see you next time.